Today's scripture is from uh, James 5, 13 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oils in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to be back with you. I always enjoy in the summer getting a, uh, a little bit longer of a break, time out of the pulpit, get some space for my thinking, some time, uh, giving an additional time to my family and my kids. And I think my kids love it when it starts, but by the end of the break, they're happy for dad to go back to work a little bit more because I kind of wear them out this year. Uh, first week of my break, I saw, I came across a stat that said that the average American kid spends less than six hours a week outside. And I thought, I'm on break. This is a great opportunity to address this in our own house. And so made a, a, a commitment to myself I am going to get my kids outside. And so one of the things that we did a lot together is we went hiking, and my kids kind of like that. Like, they kind of like, if, if you could air condition outside, I think they would like it more, but the sweat and everything, they're, they're kind of ambivalent. They do like the discovery, uh, like discovering new things when you're in the woods. And so on one of our hikes, my son Knox, he's five, he's right in the middle. Uh, we're walking along, and he kind of falls behind, and there's this wall and a crack in the wall. And he's got his face like right in the crack. And he's like, dad, I found something super cool. I'm like, what is it? He's like, I don't know. You got to come see. And so I go and his face is right up there and there is a black widow spider. And so I'm like, hey, I back away a little bit, but I'm trying to be cool about it. You know, I don't want to freak him out. And they're like, well, what, what is that? I'm like, it's a black widow. It's, it's a venomous spider. And then, and then he and his brother just became fascinated can they kill you? Well, it wouldn't be good if they bit you. What does, it, what does it mean it wouldn't be good? Like, could you lose your face if they bit you? I mean, the kind of questions that, you know, little boys ask. And then they just start asking me about everything. They just read a book on snakes. Are there black mambas in these woods? No, like, you don't have to worry. Are there venomous snakes? There's one. Oh, what can it do to you? So they're, they're intrigued. They're terrified. But they also kind of grew their love for the wilderness, which is what I wanted. And then the next time we went out, my son Knox, we're walking along and something flies up and, and stings him right in his leg. He didn't provoke it or anything, which I've told him, if you don't provoke him, they'll never sting you. Well, it's wrong. Uh, and so he starts screaming. Um, we sit down and I'm like, it's all right. You got stung. It hurts, but it's not the end of the world. And you know, like he, 
he was, he recovered well. I would say, I'm like, we can go home if you want or we can keep going. He's like, no, let's keep going. But then the rest of the time we're on the trail, he and his brother, all they can do is just talk about the bugs and are they gonna hurt you? And like, can that one sting you? And how, they don't understand how a dragonfly can't hurt you because it's a dragonfly. If there was ever a fly, the dragonfly. But it got to this point where I'm like, hey, let's enjoy it. Let's not spend our entire time talking about something that can sting us. And they just kept going and going and going. And so finally I said, listen, guys, let's be careful not to miss the forest for the bees, which I thought that's like peak dad joke, right? After five kids, you get pretty good at them. I was so proud. They did not, they did not think it was funny. Uh, as we close out our study in the book of James today, this is our last week in the study. Uh, in all seriousness, I want to make sure, what I want to do this morning is make sure that we don't miss the forest for the trees of the book of James. Because James, you know, we said when we started it, it's the bossiest book in the Bible. There are 59 imperatives in 108 verses. So it's like, less than every two verses, James is telling us to do something. And what we've done in this series as we go through verse by verse, we've really focused in on all these different commands that James has given us as a church. But I don't want to let all of those commands obscure the bigger vision that James is holding before us. See, the book of James, while it's filled with a lot of instructions, James is actually holding forth a compelling I would say a beautiful vision for the kind of community that the church should be, for the kind of community that we should be, what we should, our lives should look like, what our community should look like. We've spent weeks, so I can't cover them all, but think about it. Just highlighting some of the things James says. Number one, local church should be a community that knows how to honor everyone and that honors everyone. I mean, we live in a, a culture that's constantly dishonoring, disrespecting one another. The church should be a place where everyone, regardless of race, class, social standing, background, pedigree, education, everyone's created in the image of God. And so in the church, we should show honor, dignity, and respect to everyone. The way we interact should be different. With that, the church should be a place that with our words, we seek to bring life, not destruction. We build up. We don't tear down. We bless. We don't curse. When people get in the presence of this community, they should feel built up, not criticized, insulted, demeaned, disrespected. Third thing that James says, the community of God's people should be the safest place in the world for those who are vulnerable that the church should take it upon themselves to look and say, who's most vulnerable in our community and in our society? We must be a haven for them. And so in James' day, it was widows, it was orphans, and it was what they call strangers, refugees, immigrants, outsiders, those on the fringes. And James is saying, in the church, it's our burden and responsibility to care for them. James says the church should be a place that's joyfully generous, where we don't hoard our stuff. We give and help people in need, not under compulsion, not because there's a law requiring it, but because we love people and we want to help. 
last one I'll highlight. He says the church should be a place filled with people who are individually and collectively pursuing integrity and spiritual maturity. It's a place where people look at their lives and they say, I want to grow. I want to grow in these things. I want to push back darkness in my life. I don't want to be a slave to sin or addiction. I don't want to be flaky. I want to know how to follow through. I want to know how to suffer well. When you put it all together for me, this is a compelling vision. It's a challenging vision. When I think about us as a church, does anyone here not want that to be our community? Could you imagine the impact we would have in this city if those were some of the characteristics we were known for? Joyfully generous, patient, and suffering, honoring everyone. And James is saying that's exactly who God wants you to become. My contention is that this vision should shape and direct how we think about where we are currently and and who we want to become together. And, you know, we have to acknowledge we'll never embody this vision perfectly, this side of eternity. That doesn't mean we can't make progress. It doesn't mean we can't more fully grow into this vision. And so the question I want to answer today is how do we make progress? How do we, as a people, more fully live into the vision James has, which is the vision God's given us. And as James brings his letter to a close, he focuses in on three things, three practices, prayer, confession, and what, what we could call the practice of reclamation or, or restoration. And I don't think this is an accident. I think as James is bringing it all to a close, how are we going to actually live all these things out? I think he gives us these three things because they're essential as we seek to more fully live into the vision God has for us. And so we're going to look at these three practices, talk about what they are, and even more talk about why they're essential for our growth, both individually and as community, as a community. And we're going to start by talking about prayer. And you don't have to know much about Christianity. You don't have to spend much time in the Bible to know that prayer is an essential part of the spiritual life. If you were to, to boil the Christian life down to just a very few basic elements, one of those elements that would be there is prayer. Every Christian knows prayer is important, but I don't think we know why. I think we assume the why. It's commanded, which is true, but I think usually our questions about prayer are focused on the the how. Like, how do I do this better? How can I pray more? When I think the more important question to first ask and not assume is why. Why do we pray? Why are we called to pray? If you can't answer the why question, then prayer will be just another thing that, you know, another should not in your life that you kind of feel guilty about. Anyone here feel guilty about not praying enough? I can make you feel guilty really quick, reading some verses to you. But like, it's one of those things for so many of us. It's, I'm not very good at it, and I know I should do it more, and I need to learn how to do it better but we don't step back and say, why? Why do we pray? Well, James helps us here in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And the word suffering, it's a really big, broad word. It means, is any of you experiencing trouble or hardship? Is any of you in a place in life where things, you look around and say, things aren't going well? He says, if that's you, you should pray. 
And then he flips it. He uses another pretty broad word. Is any of you cheerful? That could mean happy or joyful or buoyant or content or that, that season of life that hopefully some of you get to sometimes where you're like, things are really good. It's like, is anyone there? Well, pray too. Pray and sing praise. What he's doing is he's saying, wherever you are, if things are really hard and you're suffering or things are going really, really well, whatever season of life you're in, whatever circumstance you're going through, prayer is always appropriate. I mean, he's basically complimenting what Paul says when Paul says we should pray without ceasing. That prayer, while it's not less than asking things of God, it's so much more. Prayer is the means by which we live our lives before the face of God. The scriptures teach us that through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, everyone who trusts in Christ is united with Christ. We have what theologians call union with Christ. We're united with him. His Spirit indwells us. Prayer is one of the primary means that we experience that union. It's the tether that keeps us connected to God experientially and relationally. It's the practice of living before him. If we divorce, if we divorce the, the commands of God from a life of prayer, we end up with a checklist spirituality. I think way too many Christians live in this place where their spirituality is what I would call a checklist spirituality, performance spirituality. Did I do this? Did I read the Bible? Check. Did I pray? Check. Did I go to church? Check. Did I give? Check. Did I serve? Check. And if you can like check enough boxes, then you feel like things are going pretty good. You feel like God's certainly pleased with me. But the minute you can't check the right boxes, you start to feel discouraged or depressed. Checklist spirituality, it's all about what we do and accomplish for God. But the Christian life is not about performing for God. It's about participating in life with God. And I, I followed Jesus for 10, 12 years before I even began to comprehend this. The Christian life, it's not about performing for God. It's about participating in life with God. It's not about believing in him or just about believing in him. It's about knowing him. And prayer is the means by which we know him. Prayer, it's one of the great antidotes to the performance checklist spirituality that so many of us live in. And it's essential because without a regular rhythm of prayer in our life, we'll either live in a state of perpetual spiritual exhaustion, feeling like we're never doing enough, we're always living a day late and a dollar short that we're not very good at the Christian life. And I think there are so many of us here that feel that way regularly. Like I, I just can't keep up or you read Jesus's promise where he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you think, no, it's not. It's exhausting trying to keep up with it at all. That's one danger. There's another danger of the prayerless life you know, that one leaves you empty. The other one leaves you full of yourself where you look at every good thing that's come in your life and you attribute it to your own effort or hard work instead of recognizing that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so it can lead to like despair or pride when we don't pray. But a regular rhythm of prayer, it has this beautiful power to both 
energize us and ground us at the same time. It empowers us and emboldens us and it humbles us at the same time. And as I contemplate where, where are we as a church, where do we wanna go, what would it look like for us to more fully live into this vision? It's gonna take more than us just saying we're gonna try harder. I'm all for effort. Like, I, I want us to put effort towards it. It's gonna take more than that. We need real power and spiritual power that is beyond ourselves. To accomplish these things, are you kidding me? We can't do this on our own. Prayer energizes us because it reminds us that the God of the universe not only knows our name, he's eager to answer our prayers. And when our prayers are in align with his will, they, as James says, are powerful and effective. The prayer, it's not just something we do for our own spiritual state. God actually listens and answers prayers. And so that should get us praying. You know, Jesus... You do not have because you do not ask. Love that verse. How many things in our lives, how many things in this church do we not have because we're not asking? So it should energize us, but prayer also humbles us because it reminds us that all the power that we need comes from outside of ourselves. Prayer guards against the grandiosity and narcissism, which is often so prevalent in the church. It grounds us and empowers us. And so, Bringing this point to a close, I guess the question I want to put before you is, do you pray? Ask yourself, do you pray? And if the answer is no or not really, I don't want you to wallow in guilt or feel miserable. I don't think that's helpful. I think I just want to ask you, what would it look like to start praying? What would it look like to pray once a day? It's a starting point. I'm convinced that we're never going to become the people or the church God desires us to be apart from prayer. We're going to hit a ceiling. And that ceiling is going to be our own talent and effort. And we're never going to break through that ceiling. We're never going to get past that if we're not seeking help from God. It just, it just won't happen. You know, it's, it's like so many things in life. I think that a lot of us approach the Christian life and prayer in this way. It's, it's kind of like if you want to say you want to get in shape, all right? And so you're thinking, it would be great to get in shape. So I'm going to eat some carrots this week. Like, that's great. Eat the carrots. But that's not going to make you get in shape because you had carrots as a snack. Like once. Anyone else ever? Maybe, that, maybe I'm revealing way too much. <laughs> or it's like, I'm going, to, I'm going to forego dessert. That's great. Don't eat the dessert. But if you actually want to get in shape, there's a whole lot of stuff you got to do. And you actually got to change some things in your life. If you want to learn a foreign language, you know, it's going to require effort. You're going to actually have to make a discipline and carve out time. And if we want to live into the vision God has for us, we eventually have to make a decision. Are we going to, are we going to be a people who commit to praying? And James knows it's essential. So the question becomes, how do I pray? That's beyond the scope. I would hold before you two resources that I found extremely helpful. One is a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Uh, it's easy to read, but it's a deep, challenging, encouraging book. It's one of my favorites. And then the other is written by our own Mike Cosper, who's a pastor here. It's called Recapturing the Wonder. And I love this book. I love this book so much because what Mike does, so many Christian books that you read, 
I feel like they're written to people who don't live in reality. That's the target audience. You know, you read a book on prayer and it's like, well, so-and-so prayed three hours a day. It's like, well, I don't think I'm going to do that. Like, that's, that's not a really encouraging thing. Uh, maybe someday I will, just on my knees three hours every morning. Mike's book speaks to the reality of our day-to-day lives and our busy lives and our connected lives. And he talks about how to build spiritual practices in the midst of it. And we have that one for sale actually out in the lobby. If you're interested, I do get a commission on how many you guys buy. But I would say like we, if we are going to grow into the vision God has for us, we can't do it apart from prayer. One other side note before we move on. In verse 14, James says, if someone's sick, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I wanna let you know that we do this here for most of our elder meetings. Someone who's sick, someone who's just got a bad diagnosis or is getting ready to go in for surgery or testing, we'll bring them in, we'll anoint them with oil, we'll lay hands on them and pray for them. And if you need that kind of prayer, like we obviously can't do it for everyone, we don't meet that often, But if you need that kind of prayer, you know someone who does, please let us know. We want to be laying hands and praying on people who are going through suffering and sickness and illness and things like that. So James says, you got to pray, number one. Then the next thing he says is confession. Verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Now, James leads this this verse a little general or generic and people debate exactly what he's getting at because there's two ways you can interpret this verse and I think they're both right and I think James leaves it, you know, lacks specificity so that you can interpret it both ways. But the first way people read this is James is saying to be a healthy, growing church, you have to know how to confess your sins when you sin against one another to one another. That when you hurt someone with your words or your actions, when you tear someone down, you have to go to them and be able to say, listen, I hurt you. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And the goal of this is healing. You want to go and bring healing to a relationship that's suffering. And this is, you know, we have five kids, nine and under in our house. And so we're const- they're constantly sinning against each other and doing all sorts of things. And so we, we're constantly telling them, hey, here's how you, you resolve this issue. You go and you say, I shouldn't have bit you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I shouldn't have snatched this thing out of your hand without asking. I mean, it's, it's like fundamental to what it means to be human is to know how to do that. And yet what I find in the church is this is so difficult for so many of us. We struggle to confess when we've sinned against people. We can confess how others have sinned against us. Fortunately, James doesn't say confess other sins, you know, to one another. He says confess your sins. Sometimes when we do confess, we're not bringing healing, which he says is the goal. We're actually tearing down. I mean, there's a way to to confess sin that doesn't bring healing, but actually brings destruction. You know, I just want to confess I've been really bitter towards you because you're an awful person. Like... (laughs) which you wouldn't do it that blatantly, but you would say, hey, I want to confess that I've been this way, but it's really your fault instead of just saying, hey, I've been bitter towards you and I'm sorry. I've expected you to be perfect and I'm sorry. 
healing that comes through confession. James is saying, if we're going to live into the vision, we've got to maintain the unity we have. We're going to sin against each other all the time. And we need to know how to confess sins to one another. But I think we struggle. When was the last time you confessed a very particular sin in your own life to someone else? And I think for a lot of us, it's probably been a long time. And then what happens is the church, we actually lose a deep sense of community. Now, that's one way. There's another way to understand this text, and they're connected. Um, when James says, confess your sins, some people would say, he's, he's saying here, not just like confess when you sin against someone else. What he's saying is you should have people in your life that you confess the dark stuff, the, the hidden stuff, that you should have some people in your life that you are an open book with, that know all of your sins, all of your temptations, all of your tendencies. You should live a life of radical honesty before some people. Now, I want to be careful here. He's not saying we should, this is, he's not advocating for like exhibitionism where you show up at community group and you're like, I'm just going to make this as awkward for everyone as possible by sharing all of the worst stuff. One of my, I've been friends with him for 10 years. First time I met this guy, he was in college and we sat down and we had a Bible study and afterwards he's like, hey, I got a question. Can we just go around? Like, what if we all just started asking one question each week. And I said, okay. And he says, what is the worst thing you have ever done in your life? <laughs> it was like, yeah, I don't think we're going to play that game week one in our Bible study. Like, we can play that 10 years in, but maybe not today. James isn't advocating that. James is saying, have a few people that you trust that you can be completely honest with. You need people in your life who, who know the worst things about you, the tendencies you have. And the reason why is because as the author of Hebrews says, it's easy for us to all become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The reason why is sin, when you commit sins over and over again, they create ruts in your soul that get harder and harder to get out of. And you need some friends who can help you see when the ruts are forming and who can help pull you out when you get in them. If you don't have this, you have these sins that are kind of taking over in your life, you won't move forward as a Christian, you won't grow in maturity, you'll eventually stall out. And you'll lose your joy for God, you'll lose passion and prayer, eagerness to obey, and you'll kind of become callous and numb spiritually. And when I look at this church, but even more when I look at the church, I can't help but wonder how much power we forfeit because there's hidden unconfessed sin in our lives, which is robbing us of joy and confidence in God. I can't wonder if the reason sometimes the ideal of church seems so far away is because the gravity and the, <laughs> the pull of our own sin, unconfessed sin, is weighing us down. You know, I'd wager that there's a number of you here this morning who are living with unconfessed sin in your life. And it might be an eating disorder. It might be pornography. It might be cutting. It might be an addiction of some sort. But it's hidden and no one knows about it. And some of you are married, but you're so good at covering your tracks that your spouse doesn't even know. And you're carrying it all alone. 
Maybe you think you're getting away with something, but you're not. Like sin always destroys. Always. Sin robs you of joy, of power, of life. It, you wonder why your spiritual life is dry. It's because you've been hardened. I would say if we don't confess our sins, they will consume us. You know, David in Psalm 32 he says, when I kept silent, he's talking about sin in his life. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David, David walked closely with God. And so when something was off, like he knew there was a, a disturbance in the force, you could say. And so he's got this sin that he doesn't want to bring up. He doesn't want to own to. It's continuing on. And he says, as he stayed there, like his power became sapped. He was unhealthy. There were physical ramifications for his unconfessed sin. You know, and I love it because, <laughs> love this text because science, if you paid attention in the last few years, neuroscientists are coming out and saying, yeah, you know what David said there is true, essentially. I mean, they have proven that when you have significant secrets that you keep from other people, it will elevate stress hormones in your body. It leads to hypertension, leads to anxiety, leads to influenza. In some cases, they've even connected it with cancer, although they're not positive that it's the cause, but they make the connection. That holding stuff in and not bringing it into the light, it has not just spiritual effects. We are whole beings. It affects your body. There's a professor from the University of Texas, James Pennenbreaker. He's the one who found this. And he found that when secrets are confessed, whether you speak them to someone else or even just writing them down on a piece of paper, the stress hormones start to go down. People who've confessed secrets, they find both physical and mental, tangible health benefits, improve relationships, people sleep better, their immune systems improve, and they get sick less. Isn't that fascinating? That's what James says right here. He's not, he's not exaggerating when he says, confess your sins that you may be healed. That bearing them is not going to heal you. I think we know this. We know the power of confession, but we struggle. Why do we struggle? I'll give you three reasons. One reason I think we struggle to confess is we think somehow we're gonna defeat this sin on our own. And there are some of you here this morning who have been struggling with one particular sin or addiction for a decade or more. You don't tell anyone about it. And in your mind, you've convinced yourself this time's gonna be different and I'm gonna solve it and conquer this on my own. <laughs> Which, it's absurd. It's 10 years, you've built this rut. In 10 years, you've been telling yourself, this is going to change and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. And you haven't been able to do it. Like you are not gonna defeat it on your own. You need to call some people and say, hey, I've got darkness in my life that's too heavy for me to pull by myself. Will you come and help me drag this darkness into the light? That's one reason. Another reason is we fear consequences. Well, what would happen if I was honest? I think there might be some negative consequences and there might be, but that's, to let that keep you from being honest, that's denying that there's negative consequences in your life right now because of your sin. It's denying that your own heart's becoming hardened and cold, that your relationships are suffering. 
Some of you are thinking, if I brought this up, it would lead to a huge fight with my spouse, and I don't want to deal with that consequence. Well, you know what's going to happen is you're not going to bring it up, but eventually it's going to come out because every sin eventually comes out, and then you're going to end up divorced because it was too long, too many years of lying. Yes, there's consequences, but don't fool yourself in thinking there's not consequences or there are no consequences by keeping secrets. Those are two. The third reason that I think we, we struggle to, to walk in confession, and again, this might be too self-revealing. Maybe this is something you resonate with, but for me, I, I just think we all believe that by a certain point, we should have this Christian life thing figured out, mastered. You know, I've been a Christian for 17 years, and there's still this thing within me that thinks I should have this figured out. I shouldn't still struggle with sin. I see that a lot in the church. That we all, we, if we're not careful, we, we can all get to this place where we think, I shouldn't sin anymore. And I mean, that doesn't mean that we won't say we're sinners. You know, we'll talk about sin in past tense, abstractly in generic terms, you know? Like I've just been struggling with some stuff. We struggle, we sin. We're not able to actually name our sins in the present because we think I shouldn't be sinning anymore. Now, when this happens to an individual, it's bad. When it infects a community, it's destructive and it will destroy the church. You look at so many churches that have fallen apart one of the things you can go to is the people got uncomfortable acknowledging that they were sinners in need of a savior. And once you remove that from Christianity, like we don't have much left. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, he writes about these churches. He calls them the pious fellowship. That's a bit of a... Uh, tongue in cheek. He says this, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. He goes on, the man who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. How often is that the church? You're hiding a lot behind smiles, but we're all living in lies and hypocrisy because we're afraid to say, you know what? I am a sinner and I need a savior. I need help. Can I confess my sins to you? But we can't do that. It's like we don't want that to happen. And so everyone's living alone with their sin and the person who's living alone with their sin is utterly alone. There's a deep, profound loneliness. If we're going to be a community that steps into the vision James has for us, we have to know how to confess. And what that means is we have to be a community where it's safe for people to confess. We have to permit one another to be sinners. That doesn't mean that we minimize or excuse sin. That doesn't mean when someone confesses a sin, we say, hey, it's not a big deal or don't worry about it what it means to be a community that where it's safe to be a sinner is to say, I know, and it's destructive. And if you continued on that path forever, what would it do to you? But your sin's not the end of your story. And as great as your sin is, our savior is even greater. We need to be a community that can 
regularly, ruthlessly proclaim the truths and promises and hope of the gospel to one another. Bonhoeffer, he continues, it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand that it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as a sinner that you are to a God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He doesn't want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you and you alone. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Just as prayer keeps us tethered to God experientially, the practice of confession keeps us tethered to the work Jesus has accomplished for us. I would say there's, there's nothing you can do to deepen your understanding of the gospel, like being in community where you can actually confess sins to one another. And if you don't have someone to do that with, reach out to me or to one of the pastors here. We will be that type of community for you. We will be a place, a safe place for you to lay out whatever you need to lay out. And I would just say, after pastoring for over a decade now, nothing's going to surprise me. You know, you might've found a new unique way to sin. And I'll say, well, that was a creative way to do that, but nothing's gonna surprise me. I don't look at you guys expecting you to be perfect. And so when you confess sin, I'm not silently judging you. I'm rejoicing with you. Prayer, confession, last one. We'll be short on this one. This, what, we would, what I call reclamation, spiritual reclamation. Verse 19, James says, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So what James is saying here, in confession, we, we take the initiative to say, you know, because I'm still on this side of eternity, I've got darkness in my life and I need other people to help me in my fight against sin. This practice of reclamation, that happens when someone doesn't do confession. They don't, they don't take the initiative. Instead, you look and you see that their life is going the opposite direction that it once was, that, that their trajectory has shifted and they're no longer seeking fellowship with God or other believers. And what James says is in those situations, we have to love those people enough to go and say hard things to them. We have to love them enough to pursue them. And I wanna be really careful here because there have been churches and communities that have used verses like this as a means to control and manipulate people. There have been plenty of people who've used verses like this to kind of fuel a sin hunting mentality, you know, where it's like you're, you're eager to find sin in everyone's life, which that sounds awful in and of itself. But if you really wanna hunt sin, just focus on your own life, that'll keep you busy. James isn't calling us to be up in everyone's business about everything. He's not saying every time you notice someone says something theologically wrong or does something that you think is sinful, you need to confront them. What he's saying is when someone has wandered, when the trajectory of their life has changed, when they're pointed in a different direction, he says we have to be people who love them enough to go after them. And that's hard in this culture. In this culture, it's like, well, they're gone. Like, I don't know what else we can do. And James says, there's something you can do. You can go pursue them, seek them out. And I use you there intentionally. A lot of people think this is the job of just the pastors. 
Like, man, I think that person's walking away from Jesus. Well, you're closer than them with them than I am. Yeah, but I don't know how to. Sure, you do. Just go and say, hey, I think you're walking away from Jesus. Can we talk about it? You know, James, he doesn't say, if someone's wandering, call the elders. He says, if someone's wandering, anyone. Anyone can go. This will look different every time. Some of the, the constants, though, of doing this well, it's intentionally seeking the person out, recognizing that we are, in fact, our brother and sister's keepers. It's honest. You gotta have honest confrontation where you don't sugarcoat things. And you have to have a redemptive aim. This is where it goes wrong so often. As people wanna go in and say, you're, you're walk, walking away from Jesus, but instead of having a heart that says, I wanna do whatever I can to bring you back, it's like, I'm gonna win the argument and show you all of the errors of your way and grind your nose in it. And that's just not helpful. The goal, the aim is always redemption. That's the what, so why. Why as James is closing his book after giving this amazing vision, does he give us this as the last command? That's the end. Oh, by the way, if someone wanders and you rescue them, you've covered their sins and saved them from death. Bye. He doesn't even give a bye. It's just over. Why? Well, <laughs> because I can testify from both personal and pastoral experience. The reason James says this is because almost all of us, we're in danger of going a little crazy from time to time. Almost all of us, maybe all of us. Some of you are like, I'm never going to go crazy. I, I've been in the church long enough that I'm just, I'm not surprised when people spin out. And all of us, we can go crazy. We can spin out. We can get tangled up in some sin or some destructive pattern or relationship. We can get lost in our heads. And we need, we can get entangled by sin and we need people who love us enough to bring us back. We all go a little crazy from time to time. We need people who love us enough that when we start to grow really crazy, they say, hey, you're going really crazy and I'm going to speak up. I think the command for us here is that we be a church that never gives up on people and doesn't write people off. And when someone sins against us or when someone does some things that we think are wrong or they're wandering, we don't write them off, we seek them out. And I'll tell you, I've, in my years of following Jesus, I've seen a lot of people wander. And sadly, I've seen more often than not, they wander and they never come back. And I was on a bad streak. Like over the, a decade, I feel like it was six or seven people that I watched it happen. I'd go have the conversation and next thing you know, they don't want to talk to me anymore. But I've also seen some beautiful stories of redemption where community comes around people and says, we all go crazy from time to time. I mean, the only people in the Bible who don't go crazy in the New Testament, who don't kind of spin out, you know, they're the Pharisees, right? It's not the disciples, Peter, it's like, I am with you forever, Jesus. An hour later, he's like, I've never heard of him. Who's this Jesus? Right? It's, the Pharisees are the only ones who like, well, that's never going to happen to me. When it succeeds, when this reclamation succeeds, it displays the gospel in a newer and a deeper way. I've seen marriages saved and renewed and deepened, lives changed. And so... To live into the vision, we can't give up on people because God doesn't give up on us. And that's what's at the heart of the gospel.
So prayer, confession, reclamation. Now I would say, which one of these sticks out to you? Which one of these is stirring something? God is working on something. And what would it, like for you to, what would it look like for you to attend to that, to press in and seek out what the Lord's will is for you? As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of Jesus Christ's body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed on our behalf. And this table, because we get to come around this table, this table enables us to ask those hard questions because we know our standing with God is not dependent on how well we perform. Our standing with God is dependent solely upon the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so that gives us honesty, courage to be honest. And so I pray for you, as you come to the table, if there's sins you need to confess, you would confess it to God here, and then you would find some good friends to confess that sin to. For others of you, there's just stuff that hasn't been addressed in a long time. I pray that this table would give you the courage to do it. And for others of you, you're like, you know, I feel like I'm not hiding anything. I feel my, my challenge for you, if you're like, this is good, but I feel like I'm moving forward in all these areas. What would it look like for you to reach out and help someone else? who's in a place in need. Let me pray.